Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the December 27, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Emily Mann, Senior Director of Education and Community Engagement at the Bowers Museum, will put aside a little holiday vacation time to present all those delectable possibilities that await us at the Bowers over the holidays and into the new year, well into the new year. Virgins, photographers, actresses, and painters figure into the cultural fair. In the second segment, we'll elbow our way ahead of the New Year's resolution frenzy with life coach Trish Walker with her modest proposal on intentional living in a recently published book entitled, Oh Honey, I'm Just Getting Started. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Once again, we take up the Ask a Leader holiday tradition of steering folks to worthy cultural institutions while they have a little time off. And I hope all of you do have some time off. That is the point of celebrating (coughs) taking stock. The perfect person to do this is my first guest, Emily Mann, generously setting aside time she's spending on vacation with her family with us at this moment. Emily is Senior Director of Education and Community Engagement at the Bowers Museum, overseeing all K through 12 education, family and adult public programs. That includes all of us folks and the Bowers Children's Museum Kidsium. Previously, she worked with the Music Center, Performing Arts Center of LA County, managing visual and performing arts residency programs at K through 12 schools throughout LA County. Emily was a leader in the Grand Avenue Partners, a conglomerate of representatives of all the arts organizations working together on the Grand Avenue in Los Angeles, including the Music Center, Museum of Contemporary Art, LA Opera, Center Theater Group, Grand Performances, LA Phil, I'm getting breathless, Emily, LA Master <coughs> Chorale, the, the Broad, and our Lady of Angels Cathedral. She also served on the Museum Educators of Southern California, the um, the MESC, that's the acronym for Museum Educator, a professional networking organization compromised, comprised of museum education directors and leaders from across Southern California. Emily was also responsible for the development of Teaching Our World Through the Arts at the Skirball Cultural Center, as well as the development of the Skirball Student Performance Programs in institutions off campus, residency programs serving underserved schools through arts programs connecting to the museum mission and exhibitions. Emily Mann completed her degree in vocal performance from, De- 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 I'm not sure I pronounced this right, the university. <laughs> Duquesne. Duquesne. There is a silent vowel in there, just like the French. Duquesne University and performed professionally in California with the L.A. Master Chorale for All Saints Episcopal Beverly Hills Choir and as lead soprano with Crescendo, a five-part vocal jazz group. She taught voice and piano lessons for years before shouldering these heady administrative missions among the many fine cultural institutions which I've already named. She comes to us today from Santa Faith, where she's enjoying the holidays a full-throated. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Emily Mann. Thank you so much. Well, we've done 
many an audio tour of museums. Emily Bowers makes it easier with its embarrassment of riches. And right now, it's every bit as abundant. I'd like to begin with the Virgin of Guadalupe exhibit already here the whole fall. It will close January 29th. I'm stealing no thunder, depriving listeners of the surprise element and what awaits them. So maybe some behind the scenes. Emily, if you could tell us briefly how you were able to snare these works from so many collections. Well, the Virgin of Guadalupe Images in Colonial Mexico is a project that's been going on for many years. I think it was at least a two or three year project in collaboration with our guest curatorial team out of Mexico City that was led by Mayela Flores Enriquez, who works at the Franz Meyer Museum and her team of Lenise Rivera and Yvonne Martinez. And so our our team here at the Bowers worked with her very closely and uh, with the Mexican consulate and uh, Mexican government working with over 14 lenders throughout Mexico, including the Museum of the Basilica of Guadalupe in Mexico City, which is the most visited religious pilgrimage site in all of the Americas. And, and then, of course, our own Orange County Diocese is our patron saint is uh, Virgin of Guadalupe, and we are have 15 lenders in total, including them. One of our largest pieces in the show is from the Orange County Diocese. So you can hear, folks, where this is drawn on. It's an ambitious project, putting them all together. And that the Basilica is the place where the pilgrimage is made in honoring the Virgin, correct? That's what's so important oh, yes. about it. That's the one you, every year you'll see people on their knees, on their way there. Every December 12th is a huge celebration, which is uh, Guadalupe Day throughout the world. And it's just filled with people coming for pilgrimage uh, to see the tilma, which is what the, the story of Guadalupe was based on back in uh, 1531. And we were excited to actually have the exhibition over Guadalupe Day, yes. uh, December 12th. And usually we're closed on Mondays, but this year, we made an exception and opened up so that people could come and see and, and show their respect at on that actual day. It was a fantastic experience. And I will get a, a little bit more into that interactive quality that's been going on, including on that day. But I just want to say that that setting, it's very in the at the, around the Basilica. At, I guess it's not north of Mexico City. Mexico City's probably sprawled all the way up to that that hilltop, correct? It is. Think, it's huge. But um, what I was going to yeah, say we is would it, say it's northern uh, Mexico City. And it, if anybody wants to know what the meaning of solemn is, it, witnessing that pilgrimage is the, the depths of the, the meaning of solemn. Well, as I said, it was a big deal that you launched this. When I went to the press event, I was taken, Emily, by you all. You put together quite the event, and there covering that was the Chinese and Vietnamese and among other press. So that cross-cultural aspect was an important one. Tell us about the, a little bit about that background. Oh, well, sure. The Virgin of Guadalupe is, a, is an image and, a, and an icon throughout the world, and she, she's more, more than just a religious icon. She presents so much of what we, we hold dear in the, in the idea of motherhood and, and kindness and, and peace. And so we, we reached out to the Vietnamese community, who we know is, is, has quite a few uh, Guadalupanas, really? as we would call them, those who follow Guadalupe. And we have a close connection with the Chinese and Vietnamese communities. And it's been very exciting to see how integrated and how excited they have been about this exhibit. This was 
one that's very different from most of the exhibits we bring in. And we've seen a lot of new people and a lot of cross-cultural interaction with it as well, including the Asian population, which we weren't sure how that was going to react, but it's been absolutely beautiful and speaks to her power as the Empress of the Americas. Well, I'm going to say give, it, give yourself credit. The power of Bowers to to get it in and get people in and it's it's always amazing it it feels it's better than church i say that so for the this exhibit we you do have this additional element i want you to talk then in in some detail about how those mexicans mexican americans whose culture is steeped in revering this archetype that it figured into the equation along with the special days you mentioned the day of the dead that you were open the virgin's anniversary of her miracle they're outside or in at the basilica it was these patrons looking back at these artful manifestations of the virgin guadalupe that provided an additional and essential element Tell us about the interactive quality that you've seen with this, perhaps that exceeded what you've noticed from your other exhibits. Any stories? Well, this is something, and I, we, we spoke to some people as we were putting this together and putting together our programming and, and questioning how we were going to be interacting with our community because we know that our immediate community outside, right outside of Bowers is, is highly has a, has a very Latino connection, has a very connection, a huge connection to the to Guadalupe, and we wanted to make sure that this was something that um, was relevant and provided them real and, and true access to this experience. And so, in speaking with some of our community, the one one quote that really stood out to me was: I know so many people were coming to us and thanking us for for having this and, and thanking us profusely for yes. bringing this in, and and it was something that we we weren't quite sure why there was there was so. Much we're like, well, you're welcome. It's a beautiful piece of art. We're very excited to have this. And, and we had this one person who said, no, thank you so much. You are doing an exhibit of my mother, and, and I appreciate this so much, uh, seeing her. She is my mother, and I thank you for having her. So it's an intense connection that the Latin American community has with Guadalupe. And so what we've tried to provide them with is multiple ways of interacting. Um, at our children's museum, we have community murals that, that you can work on together as a family to to decorate the walls there and also to understand a little bit more about the story for those who don't come from that community. We also have been able to put up a small um, altarpiece or more, more of a wall of gratitude in the museum uh, near the entrance so that people can come share their stories and share their miracles and, and um, leave notes of gratitude on the table as they come to the exhibit. But one thing we have noticed is that it is it is huge. Everyone's bringing their grandmother and, and their family members. It's becoming a family gathering to come and see these fantastic images. We do have one piece that has a reliquary in it, a small piece of the, of the tilma, and we have had to have a little extra security there. Unfortunately, people are not allowed to touch it, as, as I know that they wish they could, but it's, we've seen a lot of very positive interaction from, from the community, from the much broader community than what we were expecting. So there are those, the, the wall piece that people are adding to, are people leaving anything behind, anything like that? Yes, we are. There's not a lot that have been left behind. We've tried to keep it from, um, from being too much. Uh, we, we are accepting, like, artificial flowers. We do have some, you know, some candles there that people can light. Then more, more than likely, it's, it's small pieces of paper that people write their stories on. And so we collect those at the end of every day, and, and we'll be documenting all of those wonderful stories and, and moments of gratitude. Something that has 
that's been very interesting for us on the on the 21st century side is is through our Facebook pages and Instagram. Um, we've had so much interaction there with with wow. people's comments and blessings via our Instagram and Facebook pages as well. So during the La Posada, I think that starts the, that Mexican pageant of Joseph and Mary looking for somebody who's got room at their inn. That begins. Mm-hmm. After the commemoration of the anniversary of the the miracle performed uh, with the Virgin of Guadalupe, and it, it, but it's before the Nativity Day, the, so uh, is there any kind of different traffic coming in during the celebration of La Posada that you're aware of? Before you took uh, off, not that we've noticed okay. this year. Um, we have had since since Guadalupe Day, we've had quite a few more people coming through. Good. I think that was a little bit more of a kickoff for for folks' awareness of the exhibit and what was there. Uh, so we have seen more, but I don't know if it's specifically connected to the celebration of La Posada. No, I, I think they are separate, but I just didn't know if well people are you know because I remember there there were things going on. The Kidsium used to have some great La Posada actual celebration. So I, I didn't know if there were some other, some additional kind of layering of, of Mexican, Mexican-American celebration. Well, you've already had some fab- fabulous programs presented around the Virgin of Guadalupe. You talked about and also opening those doors on that Monday. Are there any more planned for this remaining month that the exhibit's open? Yes, we have uh, two more lecture programs that we'll be bringing in. Uh, the mural at Kidsium will still be available, so if people want to come stop by Kidsium and see how that's coming along and also participate, that will be available through the end of the exhibit. On Saturday, January 21st, we're bringing in Jeanette Favreau-Peterson, who's a professor in the Department of History and Art and Architecture at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and she is an expert on the history and study of um, Guadalupe and also Mary from, from around the world and depictions of, of the Virgin from around the world. And she'll be presenting a lecture that Saturday afternoon at 1.30 in our Norma Kershaw Auditorium titled Dark Am I Beautiful? Guadalupe from Spain to the Americas. And then we will be finishing on the very last day, Sunday, January 29th, with our closing day lecture titled Bridging the Divide, Images of Urbanism and Faith, presented by Joanna Reyes-Walton, who is a Ph.D. student at UCLA and a book review editor of Azblan, a journal of Chicano studies. So we'll be looking deeply at the at the cultural impact of Guadalupe as the dark saint, and also bridging it with the urbanism and and the modern uh, effect that Guadalupe has on on our modern culture. That is extraordinary. I can't wait. I'm just have to block the calendar out for that. I'm I'm sorry, Emily. The the second is not is uh, Sunday, January 29th. twenty ninth. the last day that it's open. Like I'm, that's yes, it. The very last day. It'll the be capper. our closing day celebration. Okay, that oh that is just required attendance for all of us folks. Well, if you've just joined in, my guest is Emily Mann, Senior Director of Education and Community Engagement at the Bowers Museum, talking about the cultural fair now on display as well as what we can look forward to seeing in the next year. I hate to do this. I hate to move on, but we have other things we wanted you to talk about. And that would be moving on to another exhibit currently on display, Seen and Unseen Photographs of Imogene Cunningham. It's open until... February 26th, so people, you can go past Valentine's Day, as we can mark our little calendar dates, that in an age that we live, 
Her art and technique are something to behold with these 60 prints, some of which are rarely seen. Tease our listeners, Emily, please, with the exquisite work of this Pacific Northwest photographer who knew her way around nude plants and industrial landscapes. Oh, Imogen Cunningham is absolutely amazing. This is one of, it's a, a smaller exhibition than we have uh, with a Virgin or, and others coming up, but it is an incredibly impactful uh, photographic journey. Imogen Cunningham was one of the great early 20th century black and white photographers, friends with Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lange, uh, along those lines, and she was best known for her portraiture. Uh, she did quite a few amazing portraits. Some of the popular ones are Martha Graham, and Frida Kahlo, and she was one of those um, uh, incredible women who really bucked the system and did what she wanted to do. So she, her, her photography isn't necessarily along the lines of one particular genre and one particular type. She kind of just wanted to portray everything she saw. And she, she never really committed to one style of photography or subject. So she went from botanical art and this beautiful micro-botanical art, very close-up um, pieces using light and shadow to, to highlight the beauty of nature through black and white photography. She did quite a few very artistic nudes. Uh, she was one of the first female photographers to photograph a male nude subject. Really? And, um, I wonder what took them so long. Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's fantastic. We have we, one of the wonderful joys we've had through this ex- exhibit is uh, meeting her granddaughter Meg Partridge, who did a an Academy Award documentary on her in the 1980s called Imogen of, of I mean a portrait of Imogen. And Meg has been working with us very close. She presented her documentary in December, and she'll be presenting two more documentaries. One on her father uh, Rondell Partridge on January 7th, which um, um, explores his photography. Some of the pieces, uh, the portraits and pictures of Imogen were in the exhibit, were done by Rondell. And so we will be seeing a presentation of that documentary with a conversation with Meg Partridge, his daughter and Imogen's grandma, granddaughter, yes. on January 7th. And then in February, February 4th, she'll be doing uh, presenting her documentary on Dorothea Lange as well. Wow. So these, these pieces that we have on display are all the way across her seven year career. Many of them are her personal photography, personal pieces that have not really been shown outside of the trust that they have. And some of them as well are some of her great portraits, including one of Frida Kahlo, which is just fascinating. Okay, so the question I have, it was uh, something that's just occurring to me now. I may catch you a little off guard, but I just want to imagine Imogen Cunningham and Louise Bourgeois together. Do you think they ever spent any time together and they knew each other? I, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew, but it would be fascinating. Wouldn't I'm it? really not sure. Because I, I could see them sort of tweaking Tweaking images, tweaking ideas, and uh, oh, I just have to think they were together. But and maybe the well, the Partridge granddaughter might might have some ideas. So maybe that is going to be a question to take to the to the. I um, would definitely take that on January seventh yes. and ask Meg because she knows everything. <laughs> yeah, and I think that'd be worth knowing because Louise is quite the character, folks. So then that is until we said open till February twenty sixth. Opened uh, just this earlier this month on December 10th is entitled As She Liked It, The Shakespearean Roles of Madame Mojeska, a performer. And I would think she probably could be one of the earliest performance artists in her day. 
She figures in Orange County history. Tell us about the themes you're striking here. Well, Madame Majeska was already a famous Polish stage actress yes. of her time before she came over to Orange County in 1876. And she was one of those fantastic women the the end of the, the 19th century. She's taught herself English so that she could perform Shakespeare to Polish audiences. And her her presentation and her dramatization of Shakespeare is well known. She's fantastic and never never had a Polish accent. She she was just brilliant in the way that she presented this. And the exhibit as she liked it is a play on Majeska's favorite Shakespearean work, As You Like It. Right. And right now we're we're celebrating, commemorating the 400th anniversary of uh, Shakespeare's death uh, through an, an exploration of Majeska's Shakespearean acting career. So we're really focusing on her various Shakespearean roles. We have, um, this is all entirely from our permanent collection, which is one of the largest uh, collections of Majeska's artifacts. And wow. um, we have costumes, we have costume pieces that were provided to her by her fans, and also wonderful photographs of her in her costumes. It's, it's actually, it's a tiny, it's a small exhibit in our small PIMCO gallery, but it has such amazing character just like her. It's just an exciting thing to walk by. And when does this one close? Yes, this one, the last day it will be open to the public is on March 12th. Okay. So it's a it's a short one, but it's a powerful one, and we will be presenting a a documentary on her life that day on March twelfth. On the last day, okay. I'll post mm-hmm. all of these in the podcast summary so people can take it all down. Well, then there <laughs> is also California Bounty. It opened in June, and I trust that's still open. It's still on display. It is. That is, again, another piece from our, many pieces from our permanent collection. And we've just re, reimagined it with our uh, guest curator, Susan Anderson, who's taking us through an idea of uh, the identity that we had in the California Bounty in the time when, when folks were using art and uh, culture to draw people to California after the big gold rush and celebrating the plein air and the art that was created around uh, Southern California. They are delectable folks, so there is so much to do there. I don't know if I think this just begs a a, a reservation over at the Tangata for uh, to sort of break up the all the different sensibilities you're shifting into from one gallery display to the next. It's just oh, when we said embarrassment with riches, I, it's it's a line I just have to keep using because that's what's happening there now into the new year we have a a drum roll here you've got some treasures upon which we're going to feast our eyes opening up in a manner speaking Frida Kahlo's personal photo album for those who aren't able to see them they were at the Museum of Latin American Art about a couple of years ago tell us what we're in for starting February 25th next year oh we are so excited about this one yes this is one that Throughout her life, Kahlo collected over 6,000 photographs of herself, of loved ones, scenes of culture, politics, art, and history. And these were taken by multiple friends and, and, and family members. And then after her death, it was locked away by Diego Rivera in her home. And it was not, we were, they was, these were not found until 50 years later. 
and then they were revealed to the public. So we are very excited to be showing these again here in Southern California. The museum in Long Beach did a wonderful job of presenting them a few years ago, yes. and we're happy to bring them back. But she, these are her personal, intimate photographs. These are, these are not her paintings, but these, these really tell us the inside story, the behind the story, the very intimate view of Frida and who she was, and so much about her passion and, and her power and how she, how she presented herself both through her art and just in, in person. Uh, she's just such a dynamic character. Yes, it, it it really does have a really personal touch. I feel like I'm helping myself to a family album that with or without a person. I guess it was a housekeeper or something that opened up this storage area, and that's what brought these all the way out. Maybe I don't know if we is are there any notes that made it clearer that she maybe uh, never intended for them to see the public, but and we're we're going to get look at them anyway. Any indication of that? I don't think so. From my understanding, it was never intended. They not be seen, um, or there wasn't any directive that it would not be seen. Right, right. Um, but I know that that Diego Rivera was so upset that he did hide them away. Okay. <laughs> I mean, in his own grieving process. But th- they are very intimate. Uh, we'll see what the extent. Her father was a portrait photographer, and we can, and he took pictures of her. And I guess we could say, p- perhaps the very the pre selfie sort of staging of her own portraits of herself and all the photographs taken of her are are on display. So it's, it's it'll be a really interesting thing. And it's been zigging and zagging all over the world between Long Beach and Santa Ana, folks. So it, we're in for a treat. So it goes from February 25th until when? Until June 26th. Okay. Thank you, Emily. We're, no. We are making you go extra hard work with all anchoring all these details so that we know that. Well, you opened up for the Virgin of Guadalupe on that Monday, but let's go through now exactly which days between today, December 27, and New Year's Day. Let's see, you've got your open t- tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Then you're closed on New Year's Day, or are you open for part of, of the hours on Saturday, New Year's Eve? We are open, yes, we're open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We are open, uh, Bowers Museum is closing at 2 p.m. on Saturday the 31st. Okay, good. And uh, we will be closed on New Year's. Right. And our Children's Museum, Kidsium, is also open 10 to 4, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And they will be open uh, the full hours on Saturday to celebrate a 3 p.m. New Year's ball, uh, balloon drop for our family. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'd like to give you a chance to tell listeners when you plan on um, or how they can get a hold of you with the, the details on your, your website. Oh, sure. You can always go to www.bowers.org, and all of our public programs and educational programs, exhibit information, information about our restaurant, Tangata, all of that is available on our website. The calendar is there. Most of our programming is on at least through March, so you should be able to see what's going on, what's coming up, including our Frida Fridays celebrations um, starting in March. And um, you can also follow us on Facebook at Bowers Museum, and we are also very active on Instagram at Bowers Museum as well, Twitter. Lovely. Well, Emily Mann, you've been so good to us to take time away from family and friends there in Santa Fe. Thank you for your generosity, and happy holidays to you. 
Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. That was Emily Mann, Senior Director of Education and Community Engagement at the Bowers Museum. We'll be right back after a station break with Life Coach Trish Walker about her roadmap toward intentional living, a book entitled, Oh Honey, I'm Just Getting Started. We'll be right back. That was Nueva España at the Boston Camarada performing. Now, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Trish Walker, and she is currently a certified life cycle celebrant to speak about her recently released book about living intentionally. It's entitled, Oh Honey, I'm Just Getting Started, published by Life Catalyst Publishing. Her previous careers, including nursing, Reiki, master, medical device sales, and the aspiring writing have all informed her decision to become a certified life cycle celebrant. That is a trained professional who employs the power and effectiveness of ceremony and ritual to serve basic needs of society and the individual. After eliciting what is meaningful to her client, Trish helps him or her create a ceremony that reflects that person's beliefs, philosophy of life, and personality. Tell us, Trish, again, where, where you got your degree? I got my degree, um, my undergrad I got from George Washington University, and my life cycle celebrant I got from the Celebrant Foundation, which is based back in New Jersey. Okay, thanks. I have those notes elsewhere. Man, I've got my notes everywhere all over these holidays. So thank you for pitching that important detail that we like to keep uh, on ceremony here at the on Ask a Leader. So let's start. I can't help when I read your book, think that inertia, it's that physical law. I guess one thing, one, something that's in motion stays in motion, less stopped by an external force or something that's not moving at all is also that um, it's that's that inertia explains the barriers that we imagine the layers of coping skills that hold us back. I'd like for you to give us a bit of background of what focused you on intentional living and, and that overtook those barriers. Great question, Claudia. Thank you so much. I kind of had an aha moment a couple of years ago, and it was, it was a couple of things. It was the sudden deaths of someone I loved, the sudden death of a friend of mine, and kind of trying to look at them in a different direction. My sister-in-law passed away from cancer. She was sick for a very long time. And she said to me, she said, you know, cancer's made my life richer than it ever would have. And she gave me some really great life tidbits and said, the best way to honor me would be to go out there and live your life in a full manner. And that's what I'm really trying to do is to trying to honor her and also my maternal aunt who kind of went through the same situation. And if we may, uh, we both, when preparing for this, we talked about a parent with Alzheimer's and so you, yes. uh, that, that as it diminishes a person we love, we can experience sort of the urgency of being super intentional. So you had so many kinds of grieving 
layers here. Gr- grieving, I want to, I, I don't know, opportunities, grieving scenarios. Life experiences, I like to call them, okay. just, just more in the fabric of life. Yes, my mom was diagnosed in her early 50s with Alzheimer's, and I call it the long goodbye because she didn't pass away until her 70s. So we went through many different phases of that, and as I entered my 50s, I did not want to have my mom's 50s. So let's talk then about... You're, you break down, you give us, a, you use the zero birthday, and I think, uh, and I want to keep going back to this inertia, because uh, that, that you, you say, you take advantage of that zero as being a kind of a defining threshold you're crossing for mobilizing certain kinds of plans and, and fulfilling those plans. And I'm, I, I'm not sure I'm going to uh, suggest that we need to wait till a zero birthday, and that's that, but I want to know how you, you, you want for us so much to, to get on it, get on our intentional <laughs> living. But this inertia is something mighty powerful. And so I don't know, it's, it's not identified as such, but I, I see that as looming over your entire book. So how do you, in your, in your coaching situations, do you identify the inertia? Because people aren't going to just just decide to change it. There's a reason they've been coping in the not so wholesome ways for so long. Absolutely. So what I hear you asking is kind of what got me motivated and what maybe can get someone else motivated. Okay. I always say I kind of got uncomfortable in my dysfunction. And let me explain that a little bit more where I was just kind of on that gerbil wheel. I was in the corporate life. I was doing the same thing, being exhausted. And a lot of us have that feeling that there's something more out there for us. And so you're absolutely right. It, it kind of coincided with my zero birthday, which I love that term. But it's also coinciding, too, with people wait for New Year's as we're coming into that season. You don't have to wait. Start today. And I think in order to answer that what else is out there for me? You've got to turn inside. I looked out for every different kind of answer. I went to workshops. I, I've had coaches myself. I've watched movies. And I was always looking for that answer outside of myself. What I do with my coaching is that I give you the tools to go inside. You've got to answer that question. That question, what's out there for me, is actually inside of you already. So I keep going back, and we talked a little bit about this too, that there's the Buddhist nun's adage, start where you are. So that's why right. I'm not even going to go down. I talked about the, the we're going to beat, in the very beginning of the show I mentioned, we're going to beat the frenzy to the New Year's resolution. We're gonna, if, if people are waiting for New Year's Day, that it's, it's just too late, baby. This, it's, it's about starting right where you are now. Like, folks, when you're done with this show, if you can reach in with some sort of intent, some kind of a one, I guess you got to start small, start, but start. And um, I mean, and identify, do you want inertia to to define you folks? Or do you want to define yourself? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be something huge. My book actually started as a blog. Okay, it was just something little that I spoke with somebody and they saw the need for it. They said, hey, you actually started 
with baby steps. A philosophy that I have is do three meaningful things a day. Get up in the morning and I sit still and I say, what three things am I going to do today? And it could be going to yoga class, cleaning out a closet, reading a book. Once you reach that three steps, it's going to give you that forward motion. And you're going to feel such a satisfaction even just from that three that you're going to continue on. But as you said before, it's, yeah, just get started. Don't wait for that, oh, well, next week I'll do it. Or, you know what, perfect example, my son has been off for winter break for two whole weeks, and I am continuing to do things every single day around his schedule. Because if we wait until that zero birthday or wait until New Year's, it's a whole lot harder to get started. So even one thing a day will be amazing for you. Well, I I want to address one feature I noticed in this book, and there there is a latitude that not everybody is going to have in their workday world. I'm thinking in sort of the working stiff schedules that I've had in the past. I don't have it right now, but that that one incorporating in what one is going to do that day is what one might think rethink differently about uh, their work situation a work relationship or threading that in there it's not a recreational thing necessarily but I'm thinking a career setting which that's one of the areas that needs the largest overhaul in many of our work situations so and it's the ability to take excursions that you were privileged enough to do I don't know that we can all avail ourselves of that opportunity. People have to stay pretty close. And that is where I'd like to pivot into one of the remarkable suggestions, which people don't think about. And I'm happy to say it's something I enjoy doing is that we'd stop taking our own town for granted. It's And it's really practical now during the season where there might be a little more time away from the working stiff stretch here. So let's I, well, let's, we can maybe uh, back and forth, you and I, we can pair some of our suggestions about how we don't take our town for granted. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it, if your listeners don't know, I do live in Park City, Utah, which I repeatedly tell my son who refuses to ski that he lives in a town that people would die to move to when yes. they do love to ski. <laughs> So, yeah, there's things you can do in your town. You know, a lot of the adventures I had in my book, I combined also with work. So it's, you know, I was in Santa Barbara, which I absolutely love, but I was there for a conference, so I did things around that. In your own town, and I know in your town, I've been there many a time, museums. Take an afternoon on a Saturday and go to a museum. Kind of remember why you live where you live. Well, we just talked about museum. We talked about one of the best ones of several here at Bowers Museum. That, and that, that is one way we can love it. What I was thinking, and I do say this, I do authentically say this, is when I head for Crystal Cove Beach Park or Laguna Beach, and I say, well, filthy rich German tourists have to spend a, an airline ticket, pay for hotels, rent a car, and get a visa to get to these places, and we can just go to these 
lovely nearby place. I can ride my bike to these places. So that's lovely. That's that's one thing. (laughs) And then I want to pair it some more with you. Is uh, it's also a chance to change transit when you love your own town. Decide you're going to take some public transit, or you're going to mix bike with trans public transit. There's those kinds of ways to getting around to, to help to loving scaling down the way in which you're getting around in the your own town that you want to love. Absolutely, absolutely. My town has an amazing free, it's an old-fashioned trolley. So every once in a while I will jump on there and just do the whole tourist loop. And it's exciting because I end up meeting people that have never been to Park City before and just to see it through their eyes, Yes, it, it reignites my passion for where I live. Absolutely. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Trisha Walker. She's a certified life cycle celebrant. Sometimes I use shorthand and say life coach. Is that permitted? Yes, it is. Okay. I do a little bit of both. (laughs) With a nursing background, among other things, she's speaking about her recently released book about living intentionally entitled, Oh, Honey, I'm Just Getting Started. Well, are there other, want to do any other pairings with what, uh, how one can love their own town more? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, something that just popped into my head is you don't even have to leave your house to love your town more. You know, I have some relatives that every holiday they, we need to go to Hawaii, we need to go here. And I said, you know what, let's just spend a holiday at home. So I did it on Christmas, just sat in my pajamas. But People are so busy and running rampant and needing to see the next thing that they don't live in the present and they don't enjoy what they have around them. I just moved to a new house about three months ago, and my goal is I want to go out and meet every one of my neighbors around me because they pull in their driveway and put the garage door down. So it's, you know, maybe organizing when it gets warmer out here, a block party just to get to know people. But we do. We think we have to look above and beyond and out and the next exotic place. And I've been to Southern California quite a bit. You live in an exotic place. I I love it. I love Crystal Cove. So, yeah, it's just, again, maybe there's a museum you've never been to in your town. I've lived in Park City for 16 years, and there's still things I've never done here. So it's just it's researching. Jump in the paper and say, hey, what's going on here this week? So you get into some delicate, there's some implied commentary, and there's a little bit more overt expression about family, the complexity of family and living intentionally. And that I, I remember when I, there, I was on a sabbatical and in uh, Spain one year, and I got to know a lot of other European families, and they all sort of scratched their heads about, we've got this this one opposite from them. They they put a premium on family, but in you're talking in your experience that you look at family by a different name, and this is acceptable in American culture. We can we can put we can compose our own families. Do you want to talk about that process? We could call it that project, but process is more that enduring kind of aspect. Absolutely, absolutely. I am in the youngest of five. And we are in five different states all over the, the country. And I really feel, Claudia, that my family situation kind of has stemmed from losing both my parents so young. I think it just really, 
I don't want to say drove a wedge because I still do talk to them occasionally, but we're not as close. I don't have any family in Utah, so I've kind of made my own tribe. I have beautiful girlfriends that would drop anything for me. And I was just having this discussion with a friend of mine, and we were kind of chuckling, saying Norman Rockwell didn't do us justice yes. with that picture of the perfect Christmas. Right. You because mentioned that everybody, in your book. Everybody stresses out about my Christmas has to look perfect. But it's just finding that community. And I tell you what, with my girlfriends, I call them my tribe, my like-minded tribe. I have more in common than I do with my older brothers and definitely my sister. So I think people feel like just because it's family, you have to. You have to do this. And you don't because you know what? Family, we're all humans too. And so... If you have nothing in common with them, I feel like it's okay. It's okay if you're not with them every holiday and every birthday. And so it's, it's kind of created a new way of thinking in my life, and I think they see how I'm operating now. And it's actually making some positive changes because I'm able to set boundaries, and they're treating me with a new respect. I was the youngest of five, and they still treat me in my 50s as the youngest. <laughs> so... Amazing how that regression always, it, it acts with certainty. That Absolutely. No matter where, when, how, it, that regression is a given. Just like inertia. Actually, that is what inertia looks like, is regressing to family roles. And so you mentioned right. in preparation about how you consider yourself something of an only child. How did you put that? I always tell people that I'm an only child, just don't tell my siblings. There you go. and it's you know it's there's always that different one in the family I'm the different one I'm asking the deep questions and you know my older brother is 15 years older than me he's he's very set in his ways and kind of I think it's nervous when I'm asking those deep questions Well, I guess that's the problem. I'm, I'm here. I'm not going to be your. I'm not going to certify myself as a coach here at Mac. But I'm just wondering when you talked about your your sort of burnished into this youngest child in there, and so serious questions are not idiomatic of the youngest sibling. So exactly. that's just off. That's just not part of your repertoire. You're not allowed that. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for pointing that out because you're right. I'm not allowed that. Yeah, and so it's sort of like it's. They're allergic to your trying to do something else. So uh, you talk about a a role that one could incorporate into their intentional living. You talk about a courage buddy. Can you explain that? And is it absolutely necessary that we have a courage buddy? You know, you had, had I got that note, and you had asked me that before. It's not absolutely necessary, as I'm recently separated, and I'm... Oh, I'm sorry single. to hear that. I'm sorry. You know what? As I tell people, it's, it, our stories with each other were over, and we couldn't be the best self with each other, and we're still good. We're still very friendly. But it's the first time I've been single in 18 years, and I kind of woke up that first morning and said, I have a choice here. I can mope about this or I can turn it into another intentional lesson and be my own buddy, so to speak. It is great if you have somebody else that maybe has that fear of heights that I had, that you guys can talk each other through that. But that 
courage buddy doesn't have to be a friend that's standing there with you. It could be a meditation you listen to. It could be a book that you read. So it doesn't have to come in that, that buddy form of having somebody physically in front of you. Okay. Well, that actually, knowing that, and I, and I have to say it was sort of, there, there were inferences that there was a dis- dissolution of a, a marriage in your book. It's not absolutely clear, but you do make it clear now, and I, I do offer my condolences with the uncoupling that you're, you're going through, because it is, it is a process there. Um, it and is, so it is. In doing that, and you, you, it, it relates to a point you bring up about dinner alone. It's an issue that in our culture, it's more acceptable solitary pursuits. I know in other cultures, doing anything alone is just not acceptable. People freak out if they see you doing things alone. I'm, and I can say, I just want to, it's not about me, folks, but I, I can, I can travel. I can do excursions all day long. I can have my breakfast or I can have my snack or lunch. I can do everything on my own. But when it gets to dinner, there is something missing in that. I just can't, I, I, have to have company to, to, for that meal. So, but you're able to do that. And I guess when, when people are ne- nearly recently uncoupled, that's what uh, can, you're going to have a lot of dinners alone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I'll back up a little bit because you did um, mention my, you were kind of getting the feeling I was uncoupling in the first book. So the, the next book that's halfway done will answer all of those questions. So. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, you know what? I have already gone out for dinners by myself, and I'm thinking of one that just came into my head. I was out Christmas shopping, and I went and sat. I was going to just run in and get fast food, and there was a restaurant called Mimi's Cafe, and I go, you know what? I'm going to go sit, and I ended up sitting at the bar, and I ended up having the best conversation with a gentleman that was also Christmas shopping, and it was nothing like, hey, I wanted to, you know, meet him in that way. We had a very nice conversation, and then we went on our wow. way. So it's, it's just being willing to sit down, and there's times where I've sat at a restaurant and brought a novel in, and I usually end up having the wait staff come over and talk to me, yes. or they leave me alone. So it's, you know, I have a very active 12-year-old, so right now sitting and eating by myself is very peaceful. <laughs> so so it, it's not as bad, it, but it is just, again, going back inside for those tools and saying, I can do this. That's when being your own courage buddy will really work out well. I like, can do I can this. Do this. I can yeah. do this. How can our listeners do this following your blog as we wrap this up? They So my blog is... 5050foryear.com, and I also have a website called trishwalker.us where I have a little bit more about my coaching programs and, and my upcoming book. Okay. Well, very fine. Trish, it's been such a pleasure having you on today. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Claudia, for yours. I so appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And When I come down to Irvine, we're going to go to that museum you said was wonderful. We're going to do that. We can do Crystal Cove. I'm going to take you on a hike, and we're not going to eat dinner alone. We're going to eat dinner together. So Trish Walker is a certified life cycle celebrant speaking about a recently published book, Living Intentionally. It's called Oh Honey, I'm Just Getting Started. I'm wishing you very happy holidays. You too, Claudia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, folks, next week, 
We're going to start the new year with an agenda item for your consideration, devoting the whole program to a pair of attorneys with a special niche in a state law, Laura Meyer and Marcy Miller. They'll talk about how they help parents plan their wills and trusts with special needs children in mind. We'll include in the discussion Laura Meyer's book, Good Parents Worry, Great Parents Plan. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Keep the holiday groove going, all right? I think I see the light Coming to me, coming through me Giving me a second sight